Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi. This is Doc Stahl, and welcome to New Books and Jazz. I'm one of over 100 volunteers on the New Books Network. If you enjoy these interviews, I encourage you to click on the link that says Donate to NBN. And whether you can contribute or not, thank you for listening to the network. Today, I'll be speaking with Derek Bang, who will be talking about his new book, Vince Guaraldi at the Piano, published by McFarland, 2012. San Francisco-born pianist Vince Guaraldi carved out a unique and enduring niche in the world of jazz. Guaraldi is known to many worldwide as the original composer and pianist behind the famed Peanuts comic strip animated television specials featuring Charlie Brown and Snoopy. But even before Peanuts, Guaraldi's jazz impressions of Black Orpheus, based upon the soundtrack of the Academy Award winner for Best Foreign Film in 1960, introduced countless people to the sounds of Bossa Nova. His single on the same album, Cast Your Fate to the Wind, won a Grammy for Best Original Jazz Composition in 1963 and was a successful crossover song cover on the U.S. Billboard Pop Chart. And Garaldi also composed, performed, and recorded a revolutionary jazz mass at San Francisco's Grace Cathedral in 1965. Author Derek Bang chronicles Garaldi's sojourns into the world of jazz from the late 1940s to his untimely death in 1976, and recalls how Garaldi could swing and play anything from boogie-woogie to bossa nova, but will perhaps most be remembered as a joyful player with a sense of playfulness and uplift. As Bang recounts, you couldn't help smiling when you heard Garaldi's music. Here's our interview. We're talking with Derek Bang, the author of Vince Garaldi at the Piano, published by McFarland, 2012. And I'd like to ask you a little bit uh, about yourself, where you where you grew up and what your influences were, and how did you get involved in this project in writing about Vince Garaldi's music career? Well, I grew up in Southern California, uh, born in 1955, so I would have been 10 years old when A Charlie Brown Christmas aired for the first time on December 9, 1965. My father was delighted in hindsight, because even at the tender age of 10, he was trying very hard to get me interested in jazz, and I wasn't biting. No kid likes to embrace what his or her parents tend to throw at them. But although I was parked in front of the TV set to watch Charlie Brown and Snoopy and the rest of the Peanuts gang make their debut on the small screen, so to speak, I wasn't prepared for the music that came along with the show. And I remember being knocked out. I had absolutely no idea who was doing the playing or if, in fact, the person playing the music had even composed the music. And the credits flew by much too quickly for me to absorb when the show was over, nor at the age of 10 was I sophisticated enough to understand that had I gone into a record store, I would have been able to purchase a soundtrack album that contained all the music, although it did wind up in my hands before too much longer. Garaldi became a recognized name 
within the next couple of years after the Peanuts TV franchise became a well-established treat in our household every time one of the shows came on the air. And as a teenager, I began doing what any kid does when you love somebody who's producing the music you enjoy listening to. I started buying all of Giraldi's albums. And as I hit college and my level of awareness increased, I realized that he had worked with other individuals as a sideman and other combos, most notably Cal Jader, and began absorbing those albums as well. I suppose we'd then have to flash forward a couple of decades to the early 1990s when the Internet started coming into vogue to understand when I actually began what eventually blossomed into the book that I wrote about Guaraldi. Searching through the Internet, I discovered that nobody had put together a website of any sort about Guaraldi, which surprised me. In fact, in the early 1990s, he'd kind of vanished. His music was no longer associated with the then-current Peanuts TV specials. And although his star would ascend again as that decade continued, I felt that it was necessary to address a very real lapse in the Internet world. And so I put up a quick and dirty Giraldi website, began adding to it as the months and years went by, and as a result of the site, was contacted by George Winston, who I quickly learned was a very big Giraldi fan, and he had been doing the same thing, scouring the web to see if there was anything out there about Vince, and was delighted to come across my site. Winston and I began corresponding. He remains a very good colleague and friend to this day, and trade. we traded information about Giraldi, and through George, I met Giraldi's grown son, David, and his family after a concert that Winston gave in Santa Rosa in 1998, if I remember correctly. And Dave very generously let me see some of the memorabilia that his grandmother, Vince's mother, had so carefully and lovingly saved in scrapbooks during her son's early career all of which was great stuff for a fan, of course, but I remained a fan as the 21st century dawned and the years began to pass, and I kind of kept waiting for somebody else to write a book about him. I figured it would have to be an insider, somebody who had worked with him or perhaps a jazz critic of the stature of Ralph Gleason, who had been so instrumental as a friend and colleague of Giraldi's back in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. But it didn't happen, and it didn't happen, and somewhere around, oh, I don't know, probably 2007 or so, some big name in the jazz world died. I don't remember who it was. It didn't have any anything to do with Giraldi. And I thought, you know, the window's closing here. The people who worked with Giraldi back in the day are getting very old, and some of them have died already, and if somebody doesn't tackle this project, it just won't get done to the degree that I clearly feel it deserved. So I got in touch with McFarland and asked if they'd be interested in such a book, and they gave the green light, and there was a little bit of negotiation back and forth. And then I went into the tank seriously for three or four years and 
emerged with a 400-page magnum opus, which was considerably longer than the word count I had contracted for with McFarland, but they very obligingly allowed all of those extra words. I guess they must have liked what they got at least a little bit. Well, I enjoyed it very much. You've got a wonderful discography and filmography, too, which I was looking over uh, before I, I made the call here. Tell people about Vince Guaraldi's environment growing up. What was the jazz scene like, and, and who were his musical influences? He grew up in San Francisco's North Beach area in a very close family that was also very busy musically. His mother's two brothers, uh, Joe Marcelino and Muzzy Marcelino, both led big band jazz groups in the 1930s and 40s and on into the 50s and 60s, in the case of Muzzy, very successfully. Muzzy Marcelino became known as the Whistler. Uh, if you listen to some of the recordings that were made in the 50s and 60s, you'll catch his very noteworthy whistling, and he contributed some of the whistling sound effects that were used in Disneyland's uh, Enchanted Tiki Room, for example. That's one of his most famous uh, contributions. Worked as Art Linkletter's band leader for a number of years, both on the radio and TV show. Anyway, point being, Giraldi grew up surrounded by music. His mother recorded in a personal diary one of her earliest delighted memories of her son, her only child, by the way, was watching five-year-old Vince sit with one of his uncles at the piano keyboard trying to pick out the tune of a song that was being played. As a teenager, he developed the facility for boogie-woogie to a degree that made him very popular at events where kids gathered. Everybody knew that uh, you could bring Vince over and he would very enthusiastically deliver some strong boogie-woogie chops. And even well into his career in later years, Garaldi always referred to himself uh, rather jokingly as a reformed boogie-woogie piano player. So that was clearly the sort of music that he loved, although he gravitated toward everything jazz. And of course, the San Francisco music scene in the 1940s and 50s delivered exactly what he was looking for. You couldn't walk half a block without stumbling across another two or three small clubs that were offering great live music. It's an entire world that we just don't see at all anymore these days. If you're fortunate enough to catch a musician whom you admire, more often than not, you'll be faced with stadium seating in some massive venue where you'll be lucky if you can see the person performing with the help of binoculars. But back in the day, in the 40s and 50s, these were all small cigarette smoke-laden clubs that sat no more than 100, maybe 120 people. And man, you could get up close and personal and be right there watching the music happen. I'm just a little too young to have experienced that environment personally myself, but I've certainly heard it described during the many interviews that I conducted with Guralli's former sidemen on many occasions, and it just sounds like a magic time. I mean, talk about wanting to step into Mr. Peabody's Wayback Machine and experience something like that personally. Uh, I'd give my right arm to do exactly that. 
uh, it must have been a wonderful time because, of course, growing up as Giraldi did, planting himself in front of the stage, listening to his jazz idols and watching their technique, what better musical education could you possibly get except perhaps to then join the very fraternity, which he would do uh, within a few short years of getting back from his brief war service in the Korean War. Yeah, it's kind of a hall of fame of great jazz clubs, Facts and the the Hungry Eye and the Black Hawk and El Matador. It just kind of goes on and on. So it, part of your book was interesting because it was it was kind of a cultural revelation, as you alluded to, about San Francisco and the jazz scene and and how amazing it was. And and it was a brief period, but it was it was really a golden age of jazz, wasn't it? That that Garali was surrounded by. No question. The the prime decade probably was from roughly 1953 to 1963, and it became very obvious to me once I jumped into this project, both from the research that I was doing and also from the conversations I was having with Giraldi's sidemen, that describing the scene itself was just as important because of the way it followed Giraldi's career to a great degree, built and promoted Giraldi's career, and also was responsible for the the way in which Giraldi's approach to music developed. Um, he, a lot of jazz musicians lost the ability to work by the middle 1960s as the jazz clubs closed and were done in by the pernicious effects of demon rock and roll, which isn't an entirely fair uh, analysis of what happened because they, the clubs were also being replaced by folk clubs and the so-called fern bars that were popular in San Francisco during that period of time. So to recognize and understand how Giraldi's musical taste and the way he approached his career changed over the years, it became necessary for me to fully understand how the nature of San Francisco's music scene itself changed over the years. It was a golden window, but it was a window, and it didn't even last an entire generation. The heyday of the clubs was probably from the very early 1950s to the late 50s, and already by the early 60s, some of the great ones were beginning to close. If I remember correctly, the Black Hawk closed in 1963, and others were already gone by then. One of the last holdouts, El Matador, continued through the early 1970s, but where there had been dozens and dozens and dozens by the middle 1960s, there were only a handful, you know, fewer than five or six that were catering specifically to jazz. So when we look at Giraldi's career and we see how he evolved through being a sideman with Cal Chater on a couple of occasions, moving through the Afro-Cuban musical influence, the heyday of samba and bossa nova in the late 1950s and early 60s. Giraldi was a shrewd cat. He could read the tea leaves, he could see and comprehend what people were listening to and enjoying, and he had the ability, which I think makes him a rare individual, to respond to that and alter the nature of the music that he was by then composing and performing to suit the public taste. 
Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the trajectory or Garaldi's musical evolution. Uh, going back, it was interesting, right before I called you, I was listening to s- some of the tracks he did with Woody Herman, and I had no idea that he had played with Woody Herman and was doing his boogie-woogie there. Um, really astonishing. And then, as you mentioned, he, he went through kind of the, the Bossa Nova era, and, and most people associate Garaldi with that, that Spanish tinge and, and the Latin-infused music that he played. Talk a little bit about that, the association with Cal Jader, and then and then later on with uh, Bola, is it Bola Sete? Is that how you pronounce his name, the great Brazilian guitarist? Yes, Bola Sete, sure. Uh-huh. Well, let's go back a little bit further. Um, Guaraldi's first association with Chater came in the very early 1950s as a member of a trio. And that that group, that was a hard bop group. Um, and then uh, Chater went off and did his thing uh, for a little while, and Guaraldi was cut loose during the period from, say, 53 through 55. He put together some of his early trios, uh, began his professional career, leading the combo that became the uh, house band uh, at the Hungry Eye, and then tried to join Woody Herman's Thundering Herd uh, in the middle 1950s. And the first time he tried to take a whack at it, he was turned down for the reason that despite Giraldi's facility on the keyboard, he was never very good at reading or writing music. And, of course, if you join a big band, you've got to be very good at reading charts because Herman's group was typical of the big band approach in those days. It was a group effort by and large. And although individual musicians were certainly given solos, they tended to be very well-planned solos that were composed to very precise specifications. Giraldi flunked the reading. But being the dedicated sort of chap, uh, born with the perseverance that uh, he would probably come to appreciate in Charlie Brown years later when he did begin his affiliation with Charles Schultz and Peanuts, Garaldi went into the tank and spent 18 months uh, working up his chops, tried out again, and this time Herman accepted him. And Garaldi became part of Herman's third herd, touring through most of 1956 from New Year's Day through about August of that year, if I remember correctly. That was a punishing schedule, and one of the things that Giraldi acknowledged about those eight months was that when you eat, sleep, and breathe precision jazz of that nature, well, precision music of any nature, on a night-by-night-by-night basis like that, you become very, very good. Listening to the recordings that survive to this day of Herman's group that include Giraldi, you don't hear his solos too frequently, in part because of the tracks that have been preserved and in part because, rather frustratingly, the piano wasn't always mic'd as well as the horns, which tended to get center stage prominence. But even so... Given the very tight specifications into which Giraldi had to shoehorn his solos, there are a couple of occasions where you definitely hear the melodic improvisation for which Giraldi would quickly become known 
he had a definite knack for throwing out a a spontaneous solo that could have been extracted as a melody in its own right. This became more noticeable when, after leaving Herman's group, he once again rejoined with Cal Chater, this time as a member of a quintet. Starting in 1956 and continuing through 19, or very early 1959, where the Afro-Cuban influence was becoming much more significant. It was a collaborative atmosphere that Guaraldi enjoyed a great deal at first, and it climaxed with a breathtaking performance at the debut Monterey Jazz Festival in 1958, an occasion where Guaraldi was singled out by critics who were present in the audience for the absolutely astonishing solos that he threw together during the five short numbers that Chater's Combo delivered at the very shank end of an evening well past midnight when the air was growing quite chilly not that anybody got up and left the trouble was by about that same time Giraldi realized that Chater was beginning to use the piano as more of a percussive instrument to go along with the drums and the bongos and the congas and less of a melodic influence. And Guaraldi definitely liked tunes. He liked songs. He liked melodies. He liked performing things that people could whistle when they walked out of a club. And he wasn't getting that so much toward the tail end of his association with Chater. So he departed amicably. They certainly remained friends. And in the very late 1950s, 59 or so, uh, serendipity struck when he went into a movie theater and saw the film Black Orpheus, was enchanted by the music that he heard on the soundtrack, decided that he had to put together his own arrangements of the Antonio Carlos Jobim, Louis Bonfa music that he had heard in that film. Trouble was, he didn't have a record contract at that point in time. He had produced two albums for fantasy back in 56 and 57 respectively under his own name they hadn't sold very well and so an initial three record contract had been severed after the release of the second lp so garaldi put together a demo disc we're now into the early 60s and shopped it around both capital and columbia and they refused to bite and so probably expecting that he'd be turned down again he went back to fantasy but max weiss had been thinking along the same lines that it might be shrewd marketing to produce an album capitalizing on the growing popularity of bossa nova and the music from black orpheus and so they wrote up a one album contract for garaldi but it was so strict Giraldi's contracts with fantasy always being a source of irritation and eventually leading to a very public fallout in the later 1960s. The contract for the Black Orpheus album was so tight that Giraldi was required to pay for the studio time himself, <laughs> which is I've always thought was kind of tacky on fantasy's part, looking back on it all these years later. Which turned out to be album, his breakthrough album, and he paid for his own studio well, time. Not, not, not only his, not only Garaldi's breakthrough album, but it was the first hit album that Fantasy had uh, in the thirteen and a half years of existence that it had, uh, you know, had up to that point. Um, the album dropped in, uh, let me think, April nineteen sixty two. 
although it didn't catch until early 1963. Now think of that, Doc, um, in this day and age, that, that an album would be in existence and in stores for eight months doing nothing and still be given the opportunity to then, you know, all that time later, slowly begin to gain ground, largely as a result of the increased airplay that Giraldi's signature original composition, Cast Your Fate to the Wind, started getting in early 1963, and finally, almost a year later, become a hit LP. Stuff just doesn't happen that way these days. If your song doesn't become a hit within two weeks, it's out of there. Now, the I was just fascinated going back and and learning the intricacies and the details, the the length and breadth of time that music was given as recently as the 60s to find itself, to find an audience, and to compare that with the way music is treated today um, was very eye-opening. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this idea anatomy of a hit and you talk about that in the book and about cast your fate to the wind and how that came about and how the stories were different as to how it came about but that that really was the breakthrough for Vince Guaraldi that particular song and and then that particular album and then and then things broke after that Guaraldi had been noodling in one interview he claimed to have been playing around with something that later evolved into Cast Your Fate to the Wind as early as 1958. The actual initial copyright on the song dates to 1961, so by that point he had obviously uh, finessed it to the point where he was comfortable with it. And so people in the San Francisco area were undoubtedly quite familiar with the tune by that point. The funny story associated with the song is that while Guaraldi was putting together the music for the Black Orpheus album, his arrangements thereof, he only had enough stuff to fill one side of the LP. Well, that's not a problem for a jazz musician, of course. He just put some other things on the uh, second side. He did covers of a couple of tunes, and then he threw in a couple of originals, Cast Your Fate to the Wind being one of them, Almaville being another one. Now, when Fantasy decided to release a single to help promote the album, they wanted to lead off with one of the Black Orpheus tunes on the A side, which made perfect sense. On the B side, Guaraldi wanted to have them put Cast Your Fate to the Wind on. Now, Jerry Grinelli, uh, who worked as Guaraldi's drummer for a number of years, tells this particular story the best. Uh, Fantasy had absolutely no interest in having Cast Your Fate to the Wind as the B-side. And Grinelli recalls that Guaraldi yelled and screamed and pitched a fit and went into the Fantasy office and stood on Max Weiss's desk and yelled and carried on until he finally carried the day. And Fantasy said, okay, fine, we'll do it. Now, the official line in the movie that San Francisco jazz critic Ralph Gleason soon put together to chart the evolution and subsequent fame of Guaraldi's hit song, Cast Your Fate to the Wind. Gleason's film was called Anatomy of a Hit, and it was made for the public television station in San Francisco at the time, then as now Channel 9, KQED, 
although PBS did not exist at that particular point in time in 1963. It was Channel 9 was simply one of a sort of loose network of public television stations. Gleason made a three-part 90-minute documentary that traced Garaldi and the evolution of the song, and within that film, Max Weiss can be seen claiming that as far as he was concerned, the only reason they put Cast Your Fate to the Wind as the song on the B-side of the 45 single was, quote, because it was the only one that fit. Well, that's nonsense. Um, that's uh, hindsight attempting to make fantasies uh, involvement in the marketing of the song a little bit better than actual truth in fact suggests. Grinelli and others insisted that Fantasy wanted nothing to do with Cast Your Fate to the Wind, obviously after the song becomes a hit. Well, how does the saying go? Fame has many fathers. Suddenly everybody is reconfiguring their involvement in a tale. Anybody who knows how music gets chopped up to be placed on a 45 understands that every song, regardless of length, unless it's a real short one, gets truncated in some way. And the truth of the matter is that the 45 version of Cast Your Fate to the Wind that Fantasy released is significantly shorter than the version that appeared on the album. So any song could have gone on the B-side, of course. And you know the claim that Cast Your Fate to the Wind was the only one that would fit is just, well, errant nonsense as far as I'm concerned. But be that as it may, uh, the song did wind up on the B-side of the single, which also was released in April 1962, and nothing much happened to that either until what came to be known as the Sacramento Miracle. When a DJ at a Sacramento uh, Top 40 station, KROY, uh, got that single, among lots of other things, that routinely came to his attention. He personally happened to like jazz. He played the A-side, thought it was a good tune, then turned it over, played the B-side, really enjoyed Cast Your Fate to the Wind. Started playing it on air as often as he was able to get away with, which at the time was not that often technically because programming on top 40 stations was very specific. You were only allowed to play a given song, say, once every couple of hours under very strict conditions. But this DJ, Tony Big, was crafty because Cast Your Fate to the Wind was an instrumental. Whenever he ran out of time as he approached the top of an hour, say at uh, 9.58 and a half leading up to the 10 o'clock news, and he only had a minute, say a minute and 15 seconds to fill, he'd put on Cast Your Fate to the Wind again and then fade it out as the news and the station ID came in. So listeners were actually hearing that song a great deal more often than would be ordinary for most of the music that was performed on KROY. Right about the time the station manager caught wind of this and was about to suggest that Tony knock this off, the song started to develop traction. Uh, the phrase that Garaldi was given when he showed up at Fantasy Studio, Fantasy uh, offices one day was, we're getting action. The song became a hit in Sacramento. It attracted the attention of music trackers who sent out newsletters to radio stations across the country indicating what 
looked good, what might become a hit, what was in the process of becoming a hit. As a result of that, it subsequently became a hit in San Diego. Los Angeles followed, and then New York. And suddenly, Fantasy found itself in the enviable position of getting orders for more records than they could press. So they had to open up new pressing areas simply to handle the demand of both the LP and the single. And that was the additional side effect. It wasn't just the single that became a hit as the early months of 1963 trundled along. The album itself also became a hit. And that's pretty rare. Uh, You don't see that too often, and certainly not with a crossover product such as a jazz album primarily developed to incorporate four significant themes from a popular foreign language film that had played theaters a couple of years earlier. It really was quite a magical phenomenon. Yeah, it, it, it just occurred to me as you were retelling a story that, that you tell so well in the book, it was almost a Rocky story. It was kind of a jazz Rocky story, wasn't it? It was unexpected. It was. Yeah, definite. You're right. A great underdog piece. Yeah, it's almost as if Lucy didn't jerk the football back and Charlie Brown nailed it. <laughs> and yeah, it was like a 55-yard field goal. I remember when the song came out on the Bay Area and, and such a a catchy, lilting, lovely song. I wonder how young people would relate to that song today. I'm just thinking out loud. But in any case, it it really propelled Vince Guaraldi, and so did Black Orpheus, Jazz Impressions of Black Orpheus. Had anybody done a jazz album like that before? Off the top of my head, I know that jazz musicians were covering songs from popular stage musicals of the time. Uh, Andre Previn, people like Andre Previn and Oscar Peterson were covering music from My Fair Lady and uh, Showboat, uh, Little Abner. So it's not entirely unprecedented uh, to talk about jazz albums that cover music from shows uh, it was pretty unusual in the case of Black Orpheus that, it was, that this was a foreign film. I can't think of another example predating Garaldi's Black Orpheus album that would cover that particular category. But then the fact that Black Orpheus had become so popular with the American public when it did in 1959, 1960, 1961 was pretty unusual in and of itself. Americans then, as now, have never been very big about embracing foreign films. That one became a hit, I'm convinced, uh, far more because of the music contained within. It was just another one of those lightning-in-a-bottle moments where people were knocked out by this smooth, sexy, seductive, lilting bossa nova sound that was conveyed so well in that film and, of course, went on to bring entire careers uh, to all kinds of musicians. Stan Getz comes to mind, of course, and uh, could anything have been more famous during the early 1960s than The Girl from Ipanema? Goodness, you wondered what... Uh, 
uh, Geraldi's Cast Your Fate to the Wind, what sort of an impact it would have on younger listeners today. Could be they'd embrace it the same way that Girl from Ipanema continues to be a very popular song these days. It's certainly been covered by a lot of reasonably modern musicians at this point. I wanted to push you through the this very seductive, the bossa nova era and the collaborations with Bola Sete, which really was huge in the Bay Area and nationwide. This Brazilian guitarist and Vince Guaraldi, who critics said they were playing as one in a, in a way that you, you rarely got in jazz. But then also I wanted to talk a little bit about Another direction that most people aren't familiar with, which is the Grace Cathedral concert that he played, and then and then wind up talking about how he got involved in the the, the Peanuts strip and the music that most people associate him with. Bolasete had been in the United States for a couple of years at the point when Dizzy Gillespie, quote unquote, discovered him performing at San Francisco's Sheraton Hotel, Sheraton Palace in. June of 1962. Sete at that time spoke no English. Uh, Gillespie certainly didn't speak Sete's language, but returned a couple of nights later in the company of one of his own musicians, Lalo Schifrin, who served as translator and allowed the two men to talk to each other. Flash forward a couple of months, Gillespie is responsible for elevating Sete's prominence in the music world. Sete releases his first album on Fantasy Records, and in July 1963 began a very successful run at the San Francisco Jazz Club Sugar Hill, which is where Garaldi finally caught up with him and came in and listened to Sete perform night after night after night. The two began to chat. Um, Sete's command of English was expanding by this point and immediately began jamming together and as Giraldi later said on many occasions it was as though the two of them had been separated at birth they played together magically Uh, they read each other's minds to a degree that was almost spooky and As Ralph Gleason commented in his liner notes on the first of the three albums that Giraldi and Sete did together, there are times when it becomes very difficult to determine where the guitar stops and the piano picks up. Gleason was also doing an occasional uh, jazz show on KQED San Francisco called Jazz Casual in those days. These were 30-minute programs where he would invite top jazz musicians who generally were playing in a San Francisco club at that particular point in time. Gleason would snatch them and bring them over to the KQED studios and get them to chat a little bit about what they were doing and put together a 30-minute program that allowed a showcase for five or six tunes by them. On the one that's devoted to Giraldi and Bolasete, there is a moment where they trade back and forth. It's that you know, it's that call and response thing that you often see on stage between two musicians, where Sete plays a run on the guitar and then Giraldi imitates it on the keyboard, and they go back and forth doing this for a little while. And the camera catches this. They're both smiling broadly, and you just know they're having the best time. And apparently, it was like that 
every time they got together and performed. For a roughly two-year period, most of 64 and 65, Garaldi and Sete were the act. They were booked in for a couple of weeks at a little club called Trois Couleurs. That's T-R-O-I-C-O-U-L-E-U-R-S. I have no idea why the owner went with that French influence, but it doesn't really matter. And the two-week booking turned into four, turned into eight, turned into six straight weeks, which was absolutely unprecedented at that point of time. Uh, people just kept coming back. Couldn't, couldn't get into the club. The lines were too long. And it continued that way. Even after that particular club booking uh, finally petered out, uh, the two musicians continued performing throughout the San Francisco area, both one-offs at colleges and universities and special events here and there and also longer engagements at the Trident over in Sausalito and a few other clubs along the way. For those two years through early 1966, the public couldn't get enough of them. The fact that Giraldi and Sete only released three albums through Fantasy, I still think, looking back, represents one of the few mistakes that Fantasy's Max Weiss ever made. There's no question that he could have put out six albums, nine, probably even 12 during that same time period, and they all would have been hits. Eventually, they parted only because Sete wanted to establish his own career, uh, despite the fact that it was a true collaborative atmosphere, it was the Vince Guaraldi combo with special guest Bolasete, and he wanted to do his own thing. So reluctantly, the great musical extravaganza that those two represented, most often with the able collaboration of bassist Fred Marshall and drummer Jerry Grinelli, came to an end, Sete went off on his own, and Giraldi turned around and wondered what to do next. But of course, he was already doing what was coming next, because that was the really fascinating part about Giraldi's career, which in fact made it a little difficult to discuss his career in strict chronological terms when it came time to actually sit down and write the book that uh, I did on him. Too much was happening simultaneously during a couple of key years in the middle 1960s. And the fact of the matter is, at the same time that Garaldi and Sete were igniting everybody's passion for the music that they were delivering, Garaldi was already well involved with a project that he doesn't get near enough credit for these days and in fact uh, served as one of the major reasons I wanted to do a book on him in the first place. Sure, everybody knows that he did the music for all of the early Peanut specials and perhaps extending it a little bit deeper, a lot of people know that he was responsible for Cast Your Fate to the Wind prior to that. But Garaldi also was responsible, I think, far more significantly for composing and performing what became the very first jazz mass that was presented during an actual church service in the United States. It had never been done before, and it happened at San Francisco's Grace Cathedral. And the backstory on that is that a young man by the name of Charles Gompertz who was one of the reverends at Grace Cathedral. And 
At the time, uh, Grace Cathedral was in the process of being built. It was to become the first significant church to be consecrated in San Francisco, and there was going to be a year of grace leading up to the actual official unveiling, if you will, which was scheduled to take place in the spring of 1965. And one day, Gompertz picked up a newspaper and saw his boss, Bishop Pike, being interviewed, uh, saying it was one of those photo ops that newspapers love to do. And Bishop Pike was shown with a collection of young people saying that among the many things that were going to be taking place during the year of, of grace for the cathedral would be what Pike described as a holy hootenanny. Now, Gompertz didn't think that was sufficiently magisterial, if you will, for something as important as Grace Cathedral. So he called Bishop Pike that day. This was a Saturday. Got him on the phone, said, you know, I, I think we can do better than that, or words to that effect. And Bishop Pike said, okay, sure. Go for it. It's your responsibility. Just make sure you fill the cathedral. Boom. End of phone conversation. Gompertz turned to his wife and said, that's it. I think my career is over. So he went and drew himself a warm bath, where he apparently did his best thinking and was sitting there contemplating his future, his wife listening to the radio in another room, when what do you suppose came on over the radio but cast your fate to the wind? Gompertz sat bolt upright in the tub. He loves to tell this story. He remembers it very vividly, even 50-plus years later. And uh, I guess not 50 plus, just 50 years later, half a century later, he remembers this story, half a century later, and said, that's it, that's what I've done. I've cast my fate to the wind. Gompertz hit the phone, started calling people, found out that Garaldi had a contract over at Fantasy Records, reached Fantasy Records, talked to Max Weiss, managed to get Garaldi's home phone number. Remember, this is all on a Saturday. Called Garaldi on the phone, discussed the situation with him, Geraldi thought about it for a little bit, said, well, Beethoven, Bach, worked in churches, why not me? Geraldi was nothing if not ambitious. And so began a collaboration that lasted for the better part of a year, which found Geraldi going over to Barry Minia, who was the organist and choir master at St. Paul's Church over in San Rafael, who gathered a choir which Garaldi began working with on Saturday mornings, working up music that was developed very consciously on Gompertz's part from existing mass hymnals, figuring that people would not be in a position to complain too much about whatever the result was if it had such a backdrop, if you will, because Gompertz was very aware of one important thing. One of the reasons that jazz had not been presented in a church setting was because jazz was still regarded as sinful music, music of the devil. And during the year that it took for this plan to become more publicly known, even before it happened, Gompertz and Bishop Pike and indeed everybody affiliated with Grace Cathedral began receiving some very dodgy mail 
from people who actually issued threats that they would do something violent if this were allowed to happen. Fortunately, none of that actually came to pass. During the time that Giraldi worked with the choir at St. Paul's Church, they worked up various themes, the portions that would be covered by Giraldi on keyboard, and as the date in question came ever closer, he brought in his sidemen, the bassist and drummer, and everybody started working together, and it all came together on May 21, 1965, when Grace Cathedral played host to literally well over a thousand people who came in to hear what became known as the Giraldi Jazz Mass. Now, agonizingly, although Fantasy released an album of this music, they did not release all the music. The entire event was recorded. The pot at the end of the rainbow, if you will, which would have been the best part, was that during the portion of the evening that was set aside for everybody to receive mass, um, Giraldi and his trio just kind of played extemporaneously. Well, there were a lot of people there. This took like 45 minutes. The Grace Cathedral LP has what's known as the Holy Communion Blues while everybody is receiving communion, and that only runs about nine, ten minutes, if I remember correctly. So somewhere out there, I like to think that somebody has a recording <laughs> of of the entire thing, but it hasn't been found yet. You know, it's kind of one of those holy grails of Giraldi's career. I had heard some of that at some point. I don't remember when, but as you said, uh, this was 1965 that this happened. And the bishop's greeting is actually on the Grace Cathedral concert. You can you can download it or get the CD. But he talks about the risk inherent in this, and things were changing in in the United States. Things were changing in the world, and this is really a big step. I think it's no accident that it happened in San Francisco, but that such a progressive city as it is, but that Vince Guaraldi was involved in this was, I don't think a lot of people know about that. And it's, it's really beautiful that Holy Communion Blues was, is an 11, 11 minute piece that he, he improvised, right? Did he write the music for that or did he improvise? Because it's, it's fantastic. It's just really a now, gorgeous there's, there's, piece. No, there was, there was nothing written. And I interviewed several of the uh, individuals who were part of the choir. They were um, young kids uh, at the time, and you know they're adults now with their own lives. And one of them, you know, what they remembered was during rehearsals, when they came to that point, Giraldi and, and his trio would play stuff that changed every single time they sat down. And <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so on that night of May 21st, 1965, they didn't know it was what completely they were all over again. Yeah. No, yeah, they had no idea. Well, for one yeah, thing, they didn't know how long they were going to be expected to continue performing. And the fact that, as I mentioned, there were so many people there and it took so long for everybody to receive communion um, Garaldi and his trio just kept on going with that remarkable facility that he has for improvisational hooks and in interior melodies and interludes. I'm convinced that's why his music continues to resonate to this day. You just can't listen to it without admiring the facility with which he's performing. 
I always like to think of Garaldi's music when you hear it for the first time. It sounds familiar. It's almost like you feel like you're hearing something that you've heard before, even though you're hearing him play it for the first time. And a lot of people describe listening to his improvisations just that way. They think, well, golly, I'm sure I've heard that before, but they couldn't have because he was making it up on the spot. That's genius. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, that's actually a great segue because it does sound familiar now because almost everybody has seen these Peanuts specials. So talk to the listeners about how did it come about that Vince Guaraldi became associated with Charles Schultz and then this amazing collaboration where all of America and the world associates Vince Guaraldi with the Peanuts strip and uh, the subsequent Peanuts specials and, and movie. Just as the Reverend Charles Gompertz gained his inspiration for what eventually became Guaraldi's involvement in the Mass at Grace Cathedral by hearing Cast Your Fate to the Wind on a radio, a young and ambitious television director-producer by the name of Lee Mendelson, having put to bed a successful TV special devoted to baseball great Willie Mays, turned around in late 1963, wondering what he would do next, and decided that having done a documentary on the world's greatest baseball player, the obvious next move would be a documentary on the world's worst baseball player, namely Charlie Brown of Peanuts fame. Mendelssohn got together with Charles Schultz and proposed a documentary that would kind of be sort of a day-in-the-life type thing about uh, what it was like for Schultz when he was putting together the Peanuts comic strip. Mendelssohn decided that he wanted some animation in the show, and he got in touch with Bill Melendez, who had been animating some Peanuts TV commercials for Ford Motor Company which had been running on the air in the early 1960s. A lot of people don't realize that those TV spots, and there were quite a few of them, predated the Peanuts TV specials that we know and love by quite a few years. The Peanuts gang also helped introduce the Tennessee Ernie Ford TV variety show during the final year. Melendez was involved with that animation as well. So anyway, point being, Melendez was familiar with the work Now, Mendelssohn was a bit of a radical. He had very specific ideas in mind for this particular show, and one of those specific ideas was that he wanted a jazz music backdrop rather than the popish music that was more often associated with uh, documentaries, uh, and particularly something that would include animation, uh, anything behind animated material was uh, commonly thought of in those days as the Warner Brothers style action-oriented cues that uh, you know were so chaotic on the screen. Mendelssohn wanted something a little more smooth and sophisticated. He wanted a jazz score. Well, he knew Cal Chater. Uh, they'd gone to school together, so he contacted Chater and asked him first. Chater declined. So then Mendelssohn got in touch with Dave Brubeck, who similarly pleaded too much work and declined as well. 
Not knowing what to do next, Mendelssohn was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge one day, listening to his car radio, and what do you suppose came on? You can almost feel the hand of God at moments like these, can't you? Cast your fate to the wind. To the wind, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So as soon as Mendelssohn uh, got back to the office, he made a few phone calls, got in touch with uh, Max Weiss over at Fantasy, who referred him to Giraldi, much the way Gompertz had been referred. Uh, And Mendelssohn discussed the project with Giraldi, and Giraldi said, okay, you know, sounds interesting. Uh, Let me kick it around. A couple of weeks went by. And then Mendelssohn got a phone call, and it was Vince on the other end, saying, I've got something here, I want to play it for you. And Mendelssohn said, okay, fine, uh, give me a few minutes, and I'll, uh, I'll drive over, and you can play it for me. And Guaraldi said, no, 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 you don't understand. I have to play it for you now, because I'm not sure I'm going to remember it. And he knew that Mendelssohn knew music a little bit, and and you know, I figure if I play it for you, you'll hear it. You know, you, you know, if, if I lose my mind, you'll be able to hum it to me later. Because remember, Giraldi did not write music. Giraldi's way of preserving things when he was organized was to turn on a reel-to-reel tape deck and record himself playing. And he had hundreds of reels of tape of him doing this. And whenever he wanted to, say, build up a tune, if he you know, he'd remember that, oh, yeah, there was this little thing, and he'd haul out one of the tapes and play it again and then reconstruct the piece of music that way. I assume, on the basis of this story, that he must not have been taping himself at this particular moment. Mendelssohn still tried to object. He said, no, I don't want to hear it on the phone because, you know, the phones, you know, they do weird things to the sound. It won't sound right. And Grawley said, no, I have to play it. And Mendelssohn finally says, okay, fine, play it. And Giraldi went through the first mm, 90 seconds of what would eventually be called Linus and Lucy, uh, better known by the general public as, quote-unquote, the Peanuts' main theme. Looking back with the passage of time and the benefit of hindsight, Mendelssohn swears that at that moment he knew that their project was going to be much better than he had expected going in because in his mind, the music was just perfect. Well, it may have been perfect, and the resulting documentary may have been engaging and charming and cute and punctuated by lots of little animated segments for which Garaldi composed not quite a dozen different catchy little tunes, but Mendelssohn wasn't able to sell it. Nobody was interested. Can you believe it? Nobody wanted to put Charlie Brown on television. Well, not only that, I think you mentioned in the book that wasn't Willie Mays and Frank Sinatra and all kinds of stars in this thing, too? Oh, yeah. Bing Crosby and all kinds of people. The original original edit, it was uh, originally designed to be a one-hour special. Mendelssohn chopped it. Uh, cut it down to half an hour, figuring that it might be more marketable in a 30-minute format. Still no takers. Almost a year goes by. And then he gets a call from a rep for Coca-Cola who mentioned knowing of the documentary 
Mendelssohn probably thought that he was finally going to be able to put that on the air, but they said, no, we, you know, we're not interested in that, but we liked the animation, and we wondered if you'd be able to do, uh, we wondered if you might have a Christmas special in the bank, because this was right after the success of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer on TV, and Coca-Cola decided they wanted a piece of this holiday special action, and they were looking. So Mendelssohn said, why, yes, we have a Christmas special. And the guy said, fine. This was on a Thursday, if I remember correctly. They'll expect a synopsis Monday morning. Mendelssohn hangs up the phone, calls Charles Schultz, and says, guess what? Schultz says, what? Mendelssohn says, I just sold a Charlie Brown Christmas. And Schultz said, what's that? And Mendelssohn said, well, that's what you're going to write between now and Monday morning. So they got together and they pounded out a script. Giraldi and Melendez remained part of the team. And much of the music that Giraldi had written for the never-aired documentary wound up in A Charlie Brown Christmas. And so most of the country watching A Charlie Brown Christmas when it debuted in December 1965 was hearing that music for the first time. Historically, however, people who lived in and around San Francisco had been hearing Coraldi perform this music for roughly 18 months during his club engagements, so they had a jump on the rest of us. Can you imagine how neat that would have been if you're a Coraldi fan, say, in uh, late 1963, uh, mid-1964, early 1965, you go see him a lot, and he's playing all these catchy little tunes that uh, he probably mentions or associated with uh, Charlie Brown and the gang. And, of course, Fantasy even released an album soundtrack for a show that never aired, and I'll bet that doesn't happen very often, uh, the album called Jazz Impressions of a Boy Named Charlie Brown. So the music was out there, even though Charlie Brown hadn't made his splashy TV debut yet. Anyway, the CBS brass hated the show as delivered. They were convinced it was going to be a loser. Even Melendez, when he watched a final cut, looked at Mendelssohn and said, you know, I think we've ruined it. One of Melendez's animators stood up during this preview screening and said, don't be ridiculous. This is going to run forever. Wise words. It's a rocky story again, because here you had Cal Jader, who who couldn't do it, and Dave Brubeck, who was too busy, and the guy's driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, and he hears Cast Your Face to the Wind, and he, he thinks about calling Vince Guaraldi, and then all of a sudden it becomes this monster hit. Even in the meantime, after they do it, when when the original uh, producer goes, I, I think we've ruined it. It's just an amazing story. It is, of course, and despite CBS's reservations, it was an instantaneous ratings monster, and Guaraldi's name was mentioned in the subsequent reviews just as often as anybody else who was involved with the project, and that in itself was rare. Reviews of TV specials in the early 1960s didn't talk about the music all that often. And so a subsequent Peanuts special was put into production instantaneously. That became Charlie Brown's All-Stars, which debuted in 1966, and then that was followed by It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, and... It just continued. And suddenly, Giraldi had this steady gig 
writing music for these once a year, sometimes twice a year TV specials, which allowed him the freedom to finally do what he really wanted to do, which was just stay in the greater San Francisco area and play the local clubs. One of the reasons I'm convinced, and even Giraldi acknowledged this uh, during interviews that he gave in the early 1970s, not too long before he died, one of the reasons that his name wasn't better known was that at about the point he became famous, he stopped touring. If you don't tour, people in Georgia and Florida and North Carolina and Ohio don't know who you are. And while he was quite famous in the San Francisco area specifically, and to be fair, most of California and the West Coast, because he would go up and down you know, the Pacific Northwest periodically, outside of the Pacific Northwest, he just didn't have much of a name. What he really wanted to do, because he disliked traveling so much, probably because of the experience that he had hated so much with the grinding responsibilities of that driving 500 miles a day, playing that night, eating, going to bed exhausted, and then getting up and doing it again during the uh, months that he spent as a member of Woody Herman's group. He just wanted to stay home and play. And that's what he did for like the whole last decade of his career. He didn't really leave the Bay Area that much. And the the uh, money that he was making as a result of the Peanuts TV specials and also his involvement with the first big screen Peanuts movie, which came out in 1969, Giraldi also did the music for that, um, gave him that flexibility. It, uh, it allowed him to sit back and do what he really wanted to do, which was just play locally and entertain folks. We've got about five minutes here. Vince Groly died a, a young man, and you did an interesting analysis at the end where you talked about his legacy. And I wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. You had a quote, too, by Wynton Marsalis that I thought was interesting, where he said, you know, the only time I ever heard jazz on television was when there was Peanuts. And it was interesting because... In some ways, because we associate Vince Garoli's delightful music with Peanuts, in some ways we don't give him his due as a a very innovative jazz pianist and entertainer and performer. I wonder if you'd talk about that a little bit as, as you do in the book. There are a lot of people who would say that Garaldi is not, quote-unquote, important in the jazz world because he sold out. He started doing this mainstream stuff for Charles Schultz and Charlie Brown. And certainly that's one school of thought, but it does a disservice to Giraldi for a couple of reasons. For one thing, by the time he became associated with Peanuts, it had already been very well established that he was a brilliant improvisational performer who had a an astonishing facility for melodic hooks and delivering music that was never more complex than it needed to be, but at the same time reflected a wide variety of styles. I mean, let's face it, not everybody can go from hard bop to bossa nova and do so smoothly and successfully at both ends of the spectrum. At the same time, Giraldi never gets credit for having turned all of America onto jazz. That, I think, is his biggest legacy. 
he may not get the improvisational groundbreaking chops that are routinely granted to somebody such as say John Coltrane but Giraldi did something which arguably was better he made people like jazz who would have otherwise said that they didn't like jazz because listening to Charlie Brown music they wouldn't necessarily call it jazz but of course it is if you go back to somebody like George Gershwin you could say arguably that Rhapsody in Blue is the dynamic, innovative piece for which he should be remembered. But the fact of the matter is that he's best remembered for the catchy tunes that he and his brother Ira delivered, so many of which have become jazz standards all these years later. That's the stuff that people really remember. And for the same reason, I don't think there's anything wrong with Garaldi being remembered for Linus and Lucy or Cast Your Fate to the Wind or perhaps most significantly every December for Christmas Time is Here, which of course is the perfect conclusion to a career where he expressed very early on in Ralph Gleason's 1963 film Anatomy of a Hit. Garaldi is quoted on camera saying, I don't just want to write songs i want to write standards i want to i don't want to write hits because hits are ephemeral they come they go standards stay with you he died in 1976 so he didn't live long enough to see that his wish would be granted because christmas time is here certainly has become a holiday standard i mean really can you think of a musician in any realm country pop jazz who has not covered that song and Linus and Lucy isn't far behind. I had the same feeling that you did after I read your book, that we take for granted joy, and that when you see Peanuts and you hear Vince Guaraldi play, to me, that's what you, you get. It, it's a sense of playfulness and a sense of joy, even though he could play all those other genres, as you said, from, from boogie to bop to bossa nova. There was really such joy and playful expression, and that's what you get from Peanuts. And Boy, you couldn't have a better legacy than that. No, I, what I like to say, and it's certainly true, and it remains true for me today as it, as it did when I was 10 years old, watching a Charlie Brown Christmas the first time, you cannot listen to his music without smiling. And come on, could anything be more important than that? I think that's a, a remarkable legacy and great that you that you wrote the book. The book is, as you say in your introduction, is not really a biography because you don't talk a lot about Vince Guaraldi's personal life. You talk about his musical sojourn. And I'd really encourage people to to read it because you get such a sense of particularly the San Francisco jazz scene and the, the West Coast musicians that during the 50s and 60s, but the musical evolution of a really original person who did so many different disparate things. What are you going to do now to top this, Derek, after you've spent four years of your life writing this book? <laughs> to be honest, at the moment I'm still resting. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't have anything I don't have anything else on the burner right at the moment. I had no idea how involved this book would be. And it's funny. At the time I started, I was still a desk editor at the newspaper where I live and I had survived the first two rounds of layoffs. We all know what's happening to the newspaper industry. But the third round nailed me along with six other equally 
talented and wonderful people. So I was stuck at home, and, you know, once again, um, God works in strange and mysterious ways. If I hadn't been laid off, I don't think I ever would have finished this book, because going into it, I had absolutely no idea how hard it would be to coordinate what turned into a massive collection of interviews and stacks of newspaper stories and little paragraphs here and there and all the wonderful stuff that Dave Giraldi was able to provide. And it seemed that every time I talked to somebody, I'd hear about something else or other people that I'd have to talk to. And, you know, you reach a point where you finally say, okay, enough. you got to sit down and actually start writing this puppy. Point being, if I were still fully employed by the newspaper, I probably still wouldn't, I'd probably still be working on it. So at the moment, I'm just resting. Well, we wish you a good long rest, but I I hope you, (laughs) you, you take up a Know another project like this again, and in many ways, I think the serendipitous involvement of you in writing this is cast your fate to the win legacy in many ways of a remarkable San Franciscan artist who really spread a lot of joy to countless people, and it's great that that legacy you were you were able to capture in this book. Thank you, I appreciate that. It's a wonderful sentiment, and it is very kind of you to say so. Derek Bang, thanks so much. I enjoyed the book very, very much. The book was Vince Garaldi at the Piano by Derek Bang. The publisher was McFarland. The book came out in 2012. For new books in jazz, thanks again to Derek Bang, and we will see you next time. This is Doc Stull. You've been listening to New Books in Jazz with Doc Stull. Our guest today was Derek Bang, who discusses new book, Vince Garaldi at the Piano, published by McFarland, 2012. In our next interview on new books and jazz, we'll talk with Gabriel Solis, who will be discussing his new book, Thelonious Monk Quartet, with John Coltrane at Carnegie Hall, published by Oxford University Press, 2013. For new books and jazz, this is Doc Stull.